to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. And joining me today to discuss eco-modernism is Alex Trembath. Alex is Deputy Director at the Breakthrough Institute. He is the author of several breakthrough publications and the co-director of Breakthrough Generation the Breakthrough Institute's annual summer policy fellowship, which brings together some of the brightest young thinkers in the world to work on researching policy, politics, and technology. Alex, welcome to the show. Alex, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so my colleague uh, Jordan McGillis has been bringing a lot of your guys' work to my attention. And um, shamefully, I uh, honestly, up until a couple months ago, I really didn't know a lot about you guys, but I'm very excited to have you on the show. And uh hoping to introduce your guys' work to our audience a little bit, um, because I think there's some overlap there that uh, people might find interesting. Um, so let's just jump into it. What is eco-modernism, and um, how does that approach differ from what most people would consider just traditional environmental perspectives? Sure. So eco-modernism is, as we put it, a school of thought that we sort of helped cultivate and incubate at the Breakthrough Institute, not solely at the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, there are a, a bunch of affiliated thinkers and scholars within eco-modernism, and actually a bunch of, I think, important political and sort of technological debates within the school of thought that we can get into if it makes sense. Um, but there is a shared thinking um, uh, sort of encompassing all of those thinkers and all of those debates. Uh, and I think the, the best way to describe it is that eco-modernists agree with a real, real central tenet of conventional environmentalism which is that we should care about the natural world, we should care about non-human nature, and we should, uh, we should try to protect it, we, we should try to save it. Um, but uh, we diverge from sort of conventional environmentalism uh, and, and conventional environmentalists thinking that we need to harmonize with the natural world, uh, that, that we need to be more organic, um, that we need to capture um, sort of natural renewable flows uh, of energy and materials, what, what, what eco-modernists uh, offer as an alternative is the idea that we need to decouple from the natural world, from, from natural processes as much as we can to save nature. So the more that we industrialize, the more that we synthesize, uh, the, the more that we you know, sort of pull back from uh, a dependence on natural systems like, uh, like forests, like waterways, like natural protein sources, um, then the, the more of non-human nature we can save. And so that's sort of eco-modernism in a, in a, at 30,000 feet. You know, I'd point our readers to uh, a publication that I'll put in the show notes. It's the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, which is like a very nice short outline of everything that you guys are about. Um, and it was part of my reading to prep for this conversation. Um, so a few things that I found interesting um, that I think really separates you guys from uh, more traditional environmental perspectives. First thing is you guys recognize that there's human progress has happened and that's not always the case with environmentalists. So, um, and it, it seems like technology is a big, uh, plays a big role in your guys's worldview. So um, I guess, why don't we start there? Technology, talk a little bit about it. What, uh, how do you guys view it in terms of uh, what, uh, how is it valuable for environmental sustainability and what are your kind of views there? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple levels to this. Um, one is the, is the sort of 
so-called environmentalist paradox. Um, uh, the paradox being that in conventional environmental metaphysics, humans are fundamentally dependent on the natural world for our well-being and prosperity. Um, but if that's the case, then given that we have destroyed so much of non-human nature, which we have, we've extirpated over half of, uh, of, of the world's vertebrates in the last century. Obviously, we've deforested a huge amount of the non-ice surface of, of the planet. We have actually had just dramatic ecological impacts. But if that's the case, if you're a conventional environmentalist, then why is human progress so profound since the Industrial Revolution? Why are life span so much longer? Why is maternal and infant mortality down by such a significant degree? Why is literacy and democracy um, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and economic growth, uh, why, why, are the, why are these things growing so robustly? Um, uh, well, you know, uh, why are more people fed uh, on, on a regular basis and why is there less exposure to, uh, to natural disasters? All of these things that comprise human progress, how can that be if we, have, um, if we have destroyed the natural ecological systems upon which our well-being is so dependent. And the answer to that paradox is that there is no paradox. It's, it's again that our economic growth and institutions and crucially our industrial technologies have decoupled our dependence, not fully, but significantly from that ecological dependence. So instead of relying on, uh, on subsistence agriculture or hunting and gathering um, or, um, or sort of wild sources of protein, we have agriculture. This is a, 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 pre, a, a far pre-industrial innovation that human societies have made to decouple human societies from dependence on natural systems. Um, we have exploitation of fossil fuels, of coal, oil, and natural gas which uh, largely displaced and uh, which our dependence on things like uh, like wood um, uh, for for heating um, and like animal labor for uh, for for mobility um, and, and things like that. Um, so these technologies, whether it's modern agriculture or fossil fuels, are increasingly things like nuclear power um, or transgenic crops. Um, decouple our dependence on natural flows of, uh, of energy and materials and allow us to, as we say, spare nature. Obviously, that's a very complicated, um, it's a very co complicated sequence of events. And, uh, and overall, that human progress has led to more humans on the planet as fewer of us are exposed to natural vagaries and more of us can live long, healthy, prosperous lives. We consume more as we, uh, as we go through that process and get richer, we eat higher on the food chain. So obviously that process of relative decoupling has had these big uh, aggregate ecological impacts, especially since the industrial revolution. Um, but, and we can get into this um, at, at at least a relative level, um, a, a bunch of those impacts, uh, a bunch of the impacts of human activity and well-being are saturating. Um, you know, so, sort of our uh, impact on uh, on land from agriculture is slowing, um, and and we I think we have the potential to reverse it even with a growing population. Uh, carbon emissions um, in rich country and really all rich countries have peaked. We think um, even if they haven't peaked globally yet. Um, so, so that's sort of how we think about technology at a high level. It is obviously driving historically unprecedented natural impacts um, uh, that obviously weren't possible before the discovery of the steam engine um, or, or the invention of airplanes or things like that. Um, but they've also enabled tremendous human progress that is not an illusion. Um, longer lifespans, more democracy, more food, 
Um, these are these are actually just good things. Period. Worth celebrating. Um, and we think that the that same process of technological innovation and technological decoupling can actually deliver a peak in the sort of historically unprecedented environmental impacts. But we have to actually embrace and celebrate and accelerate sort of technological innovation to achieve that as opposed to reversing it, which I think is a implicit or explicit mission of conventional environmentalism. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about how you came to these views, because it is sort of a unique perspective. Uh, was there a professor that you had or was there a book that you picked up or something? Um, how did you get into this and uh, how did you, where did, where did your ideas develop? Yeah, there's, there's no zealot like a convert, right? So my ideas developed uh, through exposure to the ideas of the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, I was what I would describe as a fairly conventional lefty environmentalist early in undergrad. I was an environmental economics major at UC Berkeley, go Bears, um, and you know, sort of very much on the sort of conventional, traditional climate activist train. Um, we, we need uh, a big tax on carbon emissions. We need to, to regulate and shut down the fossil fuel industry. We need to maybe degrow the economy to, to deal with the effects of climate change. We need to uh, take the reins on sort of hyper-consumerism. Um, uh, we need to be thinking about, you know, sort of limits and regulations on, uh, on human achievement and activity. Um, and so when I first encountered this, uh, th this alternative from, from the Breakthrough Institute, um, I was really, really skeptical of it um, uh, in, in undergrad and got into a, a number of what I would call collegial arguments um, with, uh, with, some, with some folks on Twitter and in person at the Breakthrough Institute. The specific fights were over things like cap and trade, um, uh, which was uh, being proposed in, in the United States Congress at the time. Um, but over, over my time in undergrad studying energy systems at the Energy and Resources Group at UC Berkeley and um, and sort of reading more uh, of the work of the Breakthrough Institute and scholars associated with the Breakthrough Institute, like, uh, like Roger Pilkey Jr. at CU Boulder, um, I, I became more and more persuaded that a sort of technologically optimistic um, politics of abundance as opposed to a politics of limits um, was, was not just sort of symbolically, but was practically more, um, more promising as an approach to dealing with environmental problems, which was something that I, uh, that I went to college to, uh, to pursue. Um, and so it was, a, it was a big sort of conversion process for me. And, and the, the story that I tell uh, about that is, is exactly the way I just laid it out, the, but the sort of single moment uh, of conversion for me was, and I, I remember this pretty clearly, um, uh, around the time that the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade legislation failed in Congress in 2009-2010 uh, when, when that was going on, I, re I remember thinking that I couldn't wait for the next Hurricane Katrina because then all these Republicans and climate deniers would really get what was coming to them. Um, and, I, and like I had that thought and then immediately realized how gross and immoral that, that, uh, that inclination and that impulse was. And, and, uh, um, and it, 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 that was a bit of a moment of clarity for me, which, which uh, led to a pretty sharp um, zag in my ideological journey towards the ideas of what became eco-modernism, which was not what we called it at the time. Um, so that led me to apply for a summer fellowship at the Breakthrough Institute, um, uh, which I got. And uh, I uh, stayed on after my, my summer there um, at, uh, and this was, this was in 2011, and I've been here ever since. 
It's really interesting. I would imagine that the fact that you were studying economics while you were an undergrad too, there probably played a big role in shaping a lot of these ideas. It, it seems like um, just sort of the basic economic way of thinking runs throughout um, the breakthroughs work and um, a lot of the writing that you do. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't want to paint with too broad a brush. I studied at the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley, where there is a ton of good scholarship, and that's where I got my degree. But I, but to paint with a bit of a broad brush, I would say that sort of environmental studies generally um, has too little emphasis on economics and technology. That uh, when undergrads, especially, are studying environmentalism and its history, or studying uh, environmental problems in the world, they get a tremendous and detailed exposure to the environmental problems in the world, to carbon emissions accumulating in the atmosphere, to that affecting our global and local climates in various ways, to deforestation, to the extirpation of, uh, of non-human nature, uh, to land use change, to biodiversity loss, uh, to the acidification and pollution of the oceans. You know, we get very vivid and, 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 and extremely lucid and I, I think helpful pictures of these global environmental problems um, without a sort of requisite understanding of the, uh, uh, the human institutions and technologies that actually drive those problems. You know, you basically have this incredibly detailed portrait of climate change, of biodiversity loss on, on the one side of the ledger. And on the other side, you just have sort of like industrial fossil fuel capitalism is bad. Um, uh, and, and that's sort of how environmental studies generally presents environmental problems. Um, and if you actually um, have a little bit more exposure to, uh, to economics and the, and the history of industrial development and, and exposure to energy and food systems and energy and food technologies, I think it both gives you a better understanding of where these problems come from, um, but also a more nuanced um, and complicated understanding of the benefits of industrial technologies and industrial modernity and, and for us the ways that industrial modernity and technology can help solve, not just cause environmental problems. Yeah, I see a lot of overlap with your guys' perspective and uh, the sort of like free market environmentalism that comes out of uh, Terry Anderson and Stroop and uh, sort of the people at Perk, which I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but um, but I, I think that you would want to distinguish your perspective from that somehow. And um, I, I was talking to somebody about this and I, I couldn't put my finger on what it was, so I'm going to let you do it. What how would you differentiate your view from uh, that sort of free market environmental perspective? Yeah, I, I would say that we are huge fans of our, of our colleagues, you know, Terry Anderson, Sean Regan at Perk. We also um, have, I, I would say, very healthy relationships with a bunch of sort of industrially minded socialists, um, Republicans, Democrats, everything in between. One of the things that kept me at Breakthrough for so long is that we sort of, we describe ourselves as uh, ideologically and politically unclassifiable because uh, I, I think where our understanding of of sort of industrial reality comes from doesn't line up uh, really neatly with any sort of uh, coherent political party or even ideology as conventionally understood in the world today, which is why we felt like we had to contribute a whole new ideology or a whole new school of thought in the form of eco-modernism. Um, so what I would say uh, generally is that. Uh, there are a whole bunch of ideas within uh, either sort of free market environmentalism um, that I think are, uh, are are very salutary to the eco-modernist project. Um, you know, we're, we think that we'll 
um, deliver sort of environmental benefits, not just through a regulatory agenda, but in many ways through a deregulatory agenda that unleashes technological ability uh, that will be necessary to deal with problems like climate change. Where I think breakthrough diverges with a bunch of our friends on the on the sort of libertarian side and on, on the sort of um, Marxist side uh, is what I think of as sort of a political pragmatism. You know, I, it's for, for us, um, it's mixed economies all the way down all over the world. Um, whether you're talking about Singapore or Norway uh, or, or the United States or, or really anything in between, it's a mixture of, uh, of rules um, and, uh, and, and the welfare state and sort of restrictions or lack of restrictions on free enterprise, um, uh, a, a sort of different levels of taxation of, of different kinds of wealth, different levels of state control over, over industry. And, uh, and and there are actually there are very um, different ways of of regulating or controlling um, uh, private enterprise and redistributing wealth. Um, but fundamentally, there is no sort of libertarian utopia existing today or Marxist utopia existing today. Um, that that it's you know, sort of every rich country um, and and increasingly all countries are a mix of sort of libertarian and Marxist ideas, and and we think they always will be, um, and, and so that's that's why we end up I think uh, communing um, with uh, with our allies on uh, on you know again the sort of libertarian side, the Marxist side, and everything in between, um, and and why for us it's less a question of free markets versus state control. Um, versus welfare state versus sort of um, un, uh, unfettered private enterprise. And it's more a question of what are the, what the concrete material technologies that can help liberate human societies, that can help spare non-human nature um, for protection. Um, uh, and, and I think that you can get good ideas towards that goal uh, from a number of different political perspectives. Sure. Um, so let, let's talk about some of those technologies, I guess, then. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that you guys talk about in the, the manifesto is the importance of cities. And I don't know if cities are really a technology. Maybe you could look at them that way. Uh, um, but why don't you talk a little bit about the importance of cities for um, environmental sustainability and um, why, uh, why are those important? It's a great question. You know, I think the way we describe it around here is that the, the three stools to the eco-modern, excuse me, the three legs to the eco-modernist stool are abundant modern energy, industrialized agriculture, and cities. Um, and they kind of all have to go together. You know, you can't really have a sort of uh, material and economically abundant society without abundant modern energy. If we were all required, if we were uh, relying on sort of uh, biomass, you know, um, uh, just sort of uh, wood from the forest and things like that, you could never create a materially abundant society. You need at least fossil fuels, and we hope things like abundant solar, nuclear, hydrogen energy in the future. Um, uh, on the, in terms of um, feeding everybody, um, you have to get out of the Malthusian trap, as it's called, where most of human labor goes to producing food for that particular human. Uh, you need modern energy to do that. Um, you, you, need, you need irrigation and fertilizer and pesticide and mechanization of agriculture um, to actually produce more food than one or, or, or than one human can consume on their own. 
And then once you do that, you have removed the late, you've gotten rid of the labor intensity of the agricultural sector, and you need a place for those humans to go. And for the most part, basically everywhere, they go to some form of a city. You know, over half the planet now lives in cities. Um, the, the World Bank expects close to 80 or 90% of the planet will live in something that looks like a city by the end of the century, which of course is another historical anomaly. In the United States today, it's depending on how you define it, it's something like 80 or 85% of people live in cities or suburbs of cities. Um, and that's because, again, we've sort of decoupled the labor force from a need to work on the farm, um, and that that drive that sort of drives um, a sort of mass migration to first it was sort of factories, um, but, but increasingly it's towards uh, services and knowledge economy, which benefit from uh, fr from density of human settlement, which uh, you know sort of uh, science and technology greatly benefits uh, from what's called economies of agglomeration, where you have places like Silicon Valley, where a bunch of similarly trained and thinking people are actually in the same physical space working together. And of course, when you have a planet of seven going on nine billion people, um, then uh, more people living more densely, again, spares more room for non-human nature, um, and, it, and it makes uh, transit systems um, more efficient, it lowers pollution. So that is why uh, cities are an important, I, I would say, not um, uh, not universally so. I don't, I don't imagine everyone to live in Manhattan or something like it by the end of the century sure. or anything, but that's why cities are an important part of sort of the eco-modernist vision of, uh, of the human nature technology relationship. It's, uh, it's because it's, this is fundamentally a modernizing project where most people are not going to be producing their own food. Uh, that means they have to do something, um, and that tends to be uh, to, to live uh, in a dense city, which also happens to have these ecological benefits. So uh, I guess shifting back to technologies, what are some technologies that you're really excited about that you see emerging that um, you think people should be paying attention to in terms of their ability to help ameliorate, ameliorate uh, environmental problems um, and help the human condition? Yeah, the first thing I would say to be just a little bit intentionally provocative is that especially oil and natural gas remain technologies that we at the Breakthrough Institute are excited about, particularly in the context of sort of low and middle income countries, um, which are producing almost no emissions in the sort of global perspective, which in, in many cases are, are just unimaginably poor compared to rich countries today. It would still need to exploit their, especially their sort of domestic uh, fossil energy resources, so they can make that leap out of the Malthusian trap towards sort of industrialization, towards urbanization. And I, and I think for a whole host of reasons, um, justice reasons, technological reasons, it is just deeply immoral for places like the United States and, and Germany to be imposing restrictions on poor countries' exploitation of fossil fuels today as, as they are trying to do. Um, so I, I got into this because I want to address climate change. Um, I, I want um, uh, the work of, I want my work and the work of the Breakthrough Institute to contribute to the move away from fossil fuels, um, uh, but they are still an important part of, uh, of the sort of energy economy all around the world today, especially in poor countries. So I, I did want to say that. Um, there are uh, a number of, uh, of technologies uh, that excite me in the longer term um, uh, when, it, when it comes to rapid decarbonization. You know, nuclear power is a, a particular focus of the Breakthrough Institute. We're, in, we're particularly excited about this next generation of smaller uh, advanced nuclear reactors um, that, that we hope to see licensed in the next couple of years and deployed in the next one or two decades that, again, can sort of we think deliver a, a new era of energy abundance um, and, and help move uh, electric power and heating systems off of fossil fuels in the coming decades. 
Um, we're also excited uh, about renewable energy technologies. Um, you know, I go back and forth on uh, on how much wind energy to expect, just because the sort of um, whatever you think of it, um, the, the sort of NIMBY constraints on where you build wind farms, uh, which are not energy dense at all, um, is very strong. Um, and, I, uh, and I think that can be confronted to some degree. Um, that said, I'm very, I continue to be very excited about existing and next generation solar technologies, um, uh, things like uh, enhanced geothermal um, and electricity storage technologies. Um, uh, on, on the sort of electricity side. Um, and I think that's what most people get excited about. Um, obviously, there's sort of this ideological opposition to nuclear among a bunch of environmentalists right now, but I do think that that is in the early phases of being on the, on the way out. Um, but, but obviously, sort of environmentalism has embraced a bunch of this techno-optimism when it comes to solar and, and batteries and, and wind turbines. The problem is that only like 20% of global emissions come from the electric power sector. Um, the rest comes from industry, it comes from light and heavy transportation, it comes from agriculture. And uh, in, in those systems, I think sort of in, environmentalism has less of an answer. So that's, uh, the, it's, it's those other sectors of the economy uh, that, that Breakthrough is trying to pay more and more attention to and trying to, uh, to drive more innovation, R&D, so the de deployment of advanced low carbon technologies in. So in agriculture, that's gonna be things like um, uh, it's going to be things like alternative proteins that have uh, that, that don't use animals to produce meat um, and have much lower emissions as a result. In in the livestock sector, there's actually all sorts of things you can do to reduce emissions. Um, for instance, you can give cattle feed supplements that lower their methane uh, emissions. Um, you can genetically modify and uh, livestock so that they grow faster and, and, and produce less uh, less pollution and emissions in their life cycles. Um, outside of, uh, of protein production, you've got things like uh, like transgenic crops that can be more resilient to drought and can, and can sequester carbon in their root system. Um, you've got things like uh, precision agriculture. You've got things like desalination. You've got things like um, uh, indoor agriculture um, that, uh, that would use a lot less water and pesticides and, and fertilizers. Um, so I, I really do think that, that Breakthrough's food and ag team has a more sort of technologically comprehensive uh, picture of what a low carbon agricultural system of the future would look like. And then in, uh, in transportation, I, like many people, I'm excited about, uh, about the Tesla, really. Um, I know that the sort of progressive climate hawks are turning politically and culturally against Elon Musk, but I think that, um, uh, that uh, light duty electric vehicles are going to continue to be really, uh, really important. On heavier transportation, I lean um, much more at the moment in the sort of hydrogen ammonia direction direction, you know, just because batteries are very heavy. Um, and so imagining powering tankers and 747s with batteries is sort of hard to contemplate. And I think that's going to require, again, sort of uh, a very sort of energy abundant uh, system run, hopefully mostly on things like solar and nuclear, producing hydrogen, producing ammonia, producing these low carbon fuels that can sort of move humans and goods around the world in a way that produces fewer emissions. Um, so that's, uh, that's, a, that's a lot of it. That's sort of some, uh, that's a, a somewhat, uh, a, that's an attempt to be comprehensive of what I hope a low carbon future will look like. And the thing that I would underline again is that it's going to require so much energy. <laughs> it's going to require way more energy than we're producing today. Um, and if we don't want to be accelerating the climate problem and we, we don't want to be sort of paving 
the landscape with wind farms and solar panels is going to play a huge role. Then we're going to need things like advanced reactors. We're going to need things like enhanced geothermal. We're going to need a, a way to produce low carbon hydrogen and ammonia and things like that. So a couple of things on that. Uh, first of all, you're probably on one of the few podcasts where saying something nice about oil and gas isn't going to get you in any trouble. So uh, no need to worry there, um, especially in the developing world. Like you said, I couldn't agree more that, uh, you know, um, these countries that are coming out of poverty need access to those resources and um, certainly should be given the, the freedom and the latitude to, to de develop them. Um, and, you know, it, I would just highlight for the listeners, uh, the difference in approach and what you're talking about here is all sort of technology focused and it's not, you know, our grandparents environmentalism. It's um, optimistic. It's looking at uh, sort of um, technological solutions and uh, I just find it really interesting. So I'm glad that you guys are doing this work and uh, it's been interesting to hear about. Um, so uh, the last thing that I want to ch chat with you about today, um, I was sent a city journal article of yours from a few months ago um, that was talking about cost of disease environmentalism. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that is and just uh, outline sort of the, the argument that you laid out in that article for our listeners and uh, we can chat about it a little bit. Absolutely. And, and, and thanks for asking about that. It was a, it was a fun little article to put together. So cost disease environmentalism is a riff on a riff of a kind of obscure economics idea. So William Balma was a mid 20th century labor economist who uh, posited this thing that has come to be known as Balmol's, Balmol's cost disease. Um, and, and he observed that as economies grow and uh, as different uh, labor productivity uh, 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 increases at different uh, at different rates in different parts of the economy, um, then relatively more labor intensive and relatively less economically productive sectors of the economy experience what he called as cost disease. Um, and the way he illustrated it with uh, was the was the string quartet, um, which is no more productive at playing Beethoven today than it was playing Beethoven two hundred years ago. But which you have to you have to compensate those chalice and violinists more today for the, the same product, which is playing Beethoven or, or whatever, because not to do so would cause them to go and be computer programmers or fitness instructors. Um, so even though their productivity hasn't risen as much as in things like construction or manufacturing or science, you have to, you have to pay those people more in, in, that, in that job. And that, uh, though, that rise in wage laborers is what Balmol called the cost disease. So last year, uh, Steve Tellis, Daniel Takash, and Sam Hammond at the Niskanen Center published a paper called Cost Disease Socialism, where they sort of expanded this idea of cost disease uh, outside of just a sort of labor relationship to describe how the modern sort of wealthy country welfare state, especially in the United States, often subsidizes demand for goods or services without attendant uh, sort of investment in the supply of that good and, of that good or service and oftentimes a restriction in it. Um, so you know the, the classic example at this point is housing, how we have these policies that subsidize demand for housing, whether it's rent control or vouchers or things like that. but we also have, have all of these land use and zoning 
policies that make it hard to build housing uh, in places like the Bay Area where I live. Um, and that just, that drives up costs for everybody. And that's the cost disease that, uh, that the Niskanen folks are observing. And uh, it's, it was a very, I think, eye-opening concept. And you start to see sort of cost disease wherever you look for it. Yep. Um, uh, once you have the Niskanen understanding of it to the degree where I saw it immediately thinking about environmental problems in the world today. Um, so I, I'm very heartened by the level of sort of technological investment from the federal government that we've seen in low carbon technologies over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Things like tax credits for renewable energy technology, new programs for deploying and demonstrating nuclear reactors at the Department of Energy, tax credit for carbon removal. Um, but at the same time, the federal government still administers these very heavy handed, uh, very bureaucratic, very top down regulations against deploying technology and infrastructure. Things like the National Environmental Protection Act or, or NEPA, things like the, in, the sort of Kafka-esque process of getting a nuclear reactor license through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, you know, again, uh, we think that sort of housing and cities are, are an important part of addressing environmental problems, and it's almost impossible to build housing and, and really, really close to impossible to build sort of functioning mass transit in the United States today, thanks largely to these restrictions on supply and investment in infrastructure. Um, and so that is cost disease environmentalism in a nutshell. We put a value on these low carbon technologies and on climate action. Um, but the same government that puts a value on those things is also regulating them to death. Um, and that increases the cost of those technologies. It increases the cost of climate action, of decarbonization and of in infrastructure deployment in a way that has bad environmental benefits and, and bad sort of human uh, welfare benefits. It's, you know, energy and food and housing, sort of really basic fundamental human needs are more expensive than they need to be. Um, and, and, and that's what I was trying to get at with that, uh, with that cost disease environmentalism idea to which I, I owe all sort of con conceptual gratitude to the Niskanen folks and really to William Baumel himself. Yeah, I think something the piece does a really good job at expressing is just the idea that the, the the process of regulation or deregulation, whichever way you're going, is really important, right? If you, uh, no matter what you're trying to build in this country right now, it's going to be very difficult, and you're going to run into some sort of regulatory bottleneck. And if you don't clear those bottlenecks before you start incentivizing uh, things with tax credits or whatever. You're not really going to get the response that your the policies, you know, sort of aimed at. So I think it's sort of an interesting overlap that we could have. Um, that you know, there should be a coalition that you could build, where you could say, uh, you know, no matter what you're trying to build, things like NEPA, things like you know zoning, um, you know, no matter what it is. Uh, you're going to run into these problems, and uh, it's something that we need to address on the supply side. Yeah, and I, I think that such a coalition is is very very possible, and and maybe even incipient. You know, on the sort of left and center left, you have things like the Yimby Yes in My Backyard movement. You have uh, sort of figures like Ezra Klein writing about what he calls supply side progressivism, or Derek Thompson at the Atlantic writing about the abundance agenda. You know, on the on the on the more sort of center right or even sort of libertarian side, you have folks like Eli Dorado at the Center for Growth and Opportunity, who is describing an increasingly detailed deregulatory agenda for building uh, infrastructure and investing in technology. You have uh, sort of, you know, the libertarian Tyler Cowen describing what he calls state capacity libertarianism. So there's this, I would say, very ideologically diverse 
coalition um, at that you're sort of pointing at in favor of basically a deregulatory agenda in a bunch of ways and investing in supply and investing in abundance. I guess the question uh, at hand is a, can that sort of elite uh, politically diverse coalition reach a actually politically significant um, uh, sort of group of voters? Um, will, will, this, will these ideas, whether it's coming from the Breakthrough Institute or the pages of the New York Times or the Mercatus Center or whatever, will these ideas scale in a politically meaningful way? Um, and I, I think that's promising, but not guaranteed. And then B, will these ideas really prevail over the I would say explicit obstruction of the institutional environmentalist movement, which is still uh, sort of fully in the tank for NEPA, which is still sort of lobbying to increase regulatory constraints on things like biotech crops and nuclear reactors, which is in many cases showing up to try and stop housing construction and things like that. Um, so I, I think that the, you know, the, in many ways, the environmentalist movement has become a lot more sort of techno-optimistic in the last generation on things like solar and wind, and even in many cases, things like nuclear and housing, but overall, the sort of ideology and sort of uh, practice of major environmentalist groups is to try to, rate, to increasingly regulate um, supply of low carbon technologies and to restrict their deployment. And I think that really needs to be uh, confronted. It's part of the work of the Breakthrough Institute is to offer an alternative and to confront that problematic uh, ideology. Um, but I think these uh, environmentalists, institutional environmentalists need to have their own internal reckoning um, uh, for, uh, for that, I think, to legacy mistake to be overcome. Couldn't agree more. Um, so last thing I'll leave you with, uh, uh, last question before I let you go. Um, there's seems to be a theme of optimism that sort of flows throughout uh, our, our, your, the conversation here. And I pick it up in the work that comes out of Breakthrough. Uh, just what are some things that you're optimistic about? You've talked about maybe this coalition that's forming um, just in a broader sense of things, like to end on sort of an optimistic note. So. Uh, what are you optimistic about? Yeah, if you spend a lot of time, you know, on Twitter or on cable news these days, it's increasingly hard to be optimistic. And uh, and I, I don't want to um, dismiss that. There are there are sort of genuine problems in the world, um, both sort of economically with infl inflation and supply crunch, sort of geopolitically with a land war uh, in Europe um, uh, for the first time in decades, um, uh, and. Um, uh, and, and sort of uh, the, the, the threats to, to democracy in places like the United States are real and, and worth worrying about. Um, that said, I'm very sort of technologically optimistic um, as we've gotten that in this conversation today about things like next generation food technologies, about next generation nuclear reactors and carbon removal technologies, solar and, ele and electricity storage and hydrogen things that will, I think, if we invest in them and, uh, and unleash them, create an even more energy abundant and materially abundant future for the next generations than we have today. Um, uh, you know, on that score, I'm extremely optimistic about the sort of direction of the global economy. You know, we worry quite a bit, and in many cases, for good reasons, about income inequality in places like the United States and, and Western Europe. But income inequality is shrinking globally. Um, you know, more people are moving into the middle class than out of it globally um, in places like Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Again, as uh, as people sort of move off of subsistence agriculture labor into cities, into the industrial and, and service and knowledge sectors. Um, and, and I think that that sort of effective globalization and of economic growth 
is is save it is just uh, delivering almost unquantifiable human benefits. Um, uh, and in a world uh, with sort of uh, international travel and the internet, then we are more connected to all of, uh, of that increasing human well-being than we ever have been before. Um, so there are obviously lots of uh, remaining uh, tribal conflicts, whether it's between Republicans and Democrats in the United States or between Russians and Ukrainians um, or, or between sort of warring ethnic tribes in places like Ethiopia. I don't want to shrug off um, the, uh, the remaining conflict in the world at its, at its different intensities today. The Eco-Modernist Project, I should say, is not a utopian one. Um, uh, you know, we don't think we're just, uh, we're just a, a couple of different political or cultural decisions away from uh, sort of lasting peace and, and prosperity. We think, it's, uh, we, we think we'll continue to face problems in the world. Um, but with sort of greater material abundance, which I think was, is within reach, and with the sort of scaling of uh, inclusive democratic institutions like, uh, like we've seen um, uh, over, over the last century or two, um, I think we can continue uh, to create a world where more people live healthy, free, prosperous, and fulfill fulfilling lives on an ecologically vibrant planet. And that's the work of the Breakthrough Institute. It's what I dedicated my career to doing. And it's something I do remain optimistic about. Where can people go to find out more about your work? Thanks, Alex. Yeah, so we're at www.thebreakthrough.org. You can follow the Breakthrough Institute on Twitter at, at the BTI. I'm at a Trembath on Twitter. And that's where you can uh, find a bunch of our stuff. My guest today has been Alex Trembath. Alex, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Alex, so much. It's been a pleasure.